Welcome to the Providence Church Podcast. We are continuing our Galatians series with a message from Pastor Dwight about Paul's testimony of how he came to know Jesus. For more Providence Church, visit us online at provchurch.net. That's provchurch.net. Let's get into it. Most of us are people who, who have certain traditions that we hold on to. And so when it comes to Christmas, I know you've got your traditions, right? So some of you open gifts Christmas Eve. Uh, some of you wait till Christmas morning till the jolly old elf comes down the chimney. I get that, right? So you, you have your Christmas morning, your Christmas Eve and all that. We, we have a Christmas Eve tradition at our house. We've had it for a long time. It might be changing now, but for decades, I'm talking for 20 years, it was Christmas Eve after the services here. It's home to watch White Christmas together. Right for Dad to fall asleep on the couch halfway through, you know, and um, Danny Kay and Bing Crosby are doing their dance. You know, it's about it's about time, right? But but we had that movie memorized. You know, we our kids grew up. Christmas Eve was that was what we did. We had the church service and then we went home. And White Christmas it was. You know, there's certain vacation spots that you have a tradition of going to. Some of you are beach people, and so you've got the spot at the beach that you've been going to for 25 years. When you go there, you have certain spots you like to eat, certain places you like to go. Almost every time you're there, this is where we're going. So we had a lake vacation for years ago when our kids were growing up, and we went to Hank's Frozen Custard. Almost every night during the seven days that we were there, there was a trip to Hank's, right? So even when we went out for the funeral for our brother-in-law Bill a couple weeks ago, uh, I, my daughter Riley had a great idea. Hey, Dad, let's go up to Hank's and get some ice cream for the family and take it back and put it in their freezer. And so that's what we did. We got some ice cream and stuck it in the freezer because that's a part of our tradition of just remembering how sweet it was to be together. There's a tradition uh, that many of you know when it comes to weddings that we'll be observing next weekend. I'm going to be walking Riley down the aisle next Saturday. Woo! And we're excited about that, right? So... So that's a big deal. But, you know, I don't see anything in the Bible about dads walking their daughters down the aisle. But, you know, it's a tradition that we do as in, in our culture. We give our, our children, our daughters away. And so as dads, we take that responsibility of arm in arm and going down that aisle together. And so that's going to be a really cool time. When it comes to church, uh, we have traditions. And so when it comes to church, we, we think it should look a certain way. You know, we have an idea about the songs we should sing and the pews we should have and how it should. And so that's a part of how we do church. We come at it with tradi traditions are familiar. Traditions are comfortable. Traditions provide us with a framework that feels secure. That's part of why we hold on to, to traditions. You can count on these things. And so there's a, a good part of tradition. I get that. But here's the question. What happens when tradition clashes with truth? Mm. Because Jesus came along and he said, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. Because the old wineskins can't hold the new wine as it's fermenting and it's expanding and the gases, whatever happens in the fermentation process, and those old wineskins will crack. They can't hold the new wine. Part of what is happening in the church at Galatia, when we're reading through Galatians this summer, as Paul writes to them, and he's writing to us as well, of course, 
is that the new wine of the gospel of Jesus Christ is bursting the old wineskins. The thing that Jesus came to do in a radical, revolutionary way to bring the gospel to people all across the world was too much for the old law wineskins, the old Jewish traditions to hold. They couldn't do it. Those laws and traditions were passed on, transmitted orally for centuries. There was the Mosaic law, which was written and recorded and observed. But there was also the Mishnah, which was uh, 613 additional laws and rules that went on top of the Mosaic law that were not of God. But these were developed over time as the Jewish people lived in community and developed traditions together to observe their life. Hmm. And so along comes Jesus and this revelation that we are saved and we are made right with God, not by following the law, but by embracing the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a new day. It's a new thing. It's a new work of God. And now the internal work of the Holy Spirit is now moving. And as the gospel comes and Pentecost comes, and now God's making us new on, from the inside out. It's not always the outside that tells the story. It's what's inside that tells the story that God's looking at, right? Traditionalists typically emphasize the outward, okay? Traditionalists often point toward the outward, the external sign, the activity, the external, the outcome, they look at those things versus the inward, which is the work of the heart and the transformation of our minds, which is what God's after. There'll be an outward expression, but he said the emphasis starts at the heart. The emphasis starts on the inside, not the external circumcision that is known by men, eighth day, good Jewish boy circumcised. But now God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circumcise your heart. I'm going to cut your heart and cause you to know not my law, my law from inside. Okay, so if you and we're going to get to Galatians, but before we do, just a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 15 that emphasizes this truth about when tradition and truth clash. Matthew 15 and a couple of verses beginning in verse one, the clean and the unclean. And then some Pharisees and teachers of the law, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, this was not a washing of hands for hygiene. This is not coming in from the fields and cleaning up at the sink because you got dirt on your hands. That's not this. They're talking about the ceremonial washing of hands in Jewish tradition, which was kind of like a surgical scrub. And it was for ritual impurities, cleansing of ritual impurities, not dirt and grime and sweat, but just that I'm I'm an unclean person. So the process was often, first of all, there was two passes at it. You'd have your fingers up and you'd let the water run down from the tips of your fingers down to your wrist. It would run down off your elbow and fall down to the ground or into the, wherever you're washing your hands. And so there would be this, like the surgeons do when they put their hands up to get ready for surgery, and that would happen. But 
then what they would do to seal it is they would then do it this way. And they would also put their fingers down and they would have the water begin running off from their, from their elbow and it would run down their arm to their wrist, down their fingers and then out, off. And so it was a double washing. And it was the, the, the tradition of the Jewish people. And so the Pharisees are looking and they see Jesus and his disciples and they're not doing that. And why aren't you doing that? And what's wrong with your people, your followers? And Jesus replied, he said, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? <laughs> now, I'm not going to get into that teaching because I want to get to Galatians, but he talks about honoring your father and mother, how important that is in the law of God. And they kind of found a way to get around it when it came to money and caring. And so there was things that they would give to their parents and things that they would withhold. And he's calling them to task for how they treat their parents. Are you really honoring the commandment? You pretend that you are, but you break it for your traditions. Hmm. You hold your traditions, Jesus said, higher than God's truth. And it leads to spiritual smugness and pride. People who tend to emphasize tradition, there's a certain I'm right, you're not kind of thing that happens and it happened in this fair. These, in fact, Jesus says later in that passage, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They say it outwardly, but I know where their hearts are. And they're not honoring me. They're proclaiming one thing and living another. So traditionalists tend to emphasize the outward versus the inward. So as we come to chapter 2 in Galatians this morning, I want you to see the context for what Paul is fighting against. We've been establishing that the last couple of weeks as we started chapter 1, that this is a, this is a polemic in that word. This is, an, is a, Paul's defense of the gospel in, in, to the church in Galatia. There's opponents, these Judaizers that are coming in from the outside, and they're emphasizing the traditions. They're emphasizing the law. And so Paul is fighting against that. He's actually fighting here in Galatians for the very soul of the early church. We are able to have worship today and observe uh, communion and share life together and, and live according to the Spirit because Paul was willing to fight the fight in the first century and others with him. The Judaizers, as I said last week, uh, it was Jesus plus. So Jesus plus the law. Jesus is the Messiah to them. Jesus is the Messiah only for the Jews. If you want to be saved, you need to become a Jew. If you, before you become a child of God, you must be circumcised. Acts chapter 15. If you read the Jerusalem Council, there's a debate about this that's big in the early part of the church's history. And that's what verse 1 begins with. These men came from Judea, and they started to spread the message among those in the church. You need to be, if you want to be saved, you need to be circumcised. And this was the, this was the, the contest, if you will. The backstory for what Paul is confronting in his letter to the Galatians. So if you have your Bible to Galatians chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in the first 10 verses there this morning. As we spend our summer discovering what God has to say through the Apostle Paul here to us. So verse 1 of chapter 2 in Galatians, Paul says 14 years later, now he has already talked about his calling in the first chapter and 
and the time that he spent in uh, Syria and Cilicia, which was his hometown of Tarsus. He spent three years in Arabia and spent about, about seven years in Tarsus. And so he said, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. And I took Titus along also. And I went in response to a, revel to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose, verse 4, because some false brothers, here it is, had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Now, if we read through Galatians all summer long, you're going to note that one of the main themes is freedom. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Freedom in Christ, Paul's emphasizing that. We don't want to become slaves. We did not give in, he says, verse 5, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Verse 6, as for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. Kind of tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> God does not judge by external appearances. There you go. Those men added nothing to my message. These apostles who were very important, but these apostles added nothing. And I'll talk about that later. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. And all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. John Stott said it well. He said, The bane of Paul's life and ministry was the insidious activity of false teachers. Wherever he went, they dogged his footsteps. No sooner had he planted the gospel in some locality than false teachers began to trouble the church by perverting it. And when you pervert something, you twist it. You make it something it's not. You try to add to it or change it. That's what it means to pervert something. And so here's what Paul had to face at every turn. He goes in, he, by the Spirit of God, he plants a church in a community, and he leaves to go to the next place. And when he leaves, people come in behind him, and they start to sow seeds of discord and disunity and disagreement and division and all those. That's how, that's how the enemy works, right? That's how Satan works. So every time Paul's stepping forward in faith to do a work of God in a new place, there's people coming in behind that are trying to undo it. And, and, and that's what Satan's been doing. Since the beginning of time, since the beginning of the church. So this is the, the battle that Paul faced. They tried to undermine his authority, saying he's not like Peter. He's not like John. He's not like James. He's, he's late to the party, right? He's a pretender. And one of the ways they tried to undermine him was to, to hint that his gospel was different from Peter's. So here's a classic Thing again, they try to drive a wedge between the apostles. 
Well, Peter's preaching this, and Paul's preaching this, and Peter thinks this, and Paul thinks this, and Peter says this, and Paul says this. And so they're trying to drive a wedge in between all these new churches because, well, the le- your leaders are there are two different things here happening. Not true. And Paul's going to speak to that. But this is the plan of the, the sabotage, the saboteurs to come in and pit them against one another, alleging that the God, the apostles contradicted each other. And so a big part of this section in early part of chapter two is that Paul now shows them that his gospel was precisely the same as that of the other apostles. In fact, they welcomed him. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. Brother, you are part of us. You are one of us. We are in simpatico. We are in unity together about the gospel. What a, what a great revelation that it was not different. Note, did you notice that Paul takes two people along with him? The first that he mentions is Barnabas, who is perhaps, if you've studied the New Testament book of Acts, you know Barnabas was a really key leader in the early church. He was, uh, his, the name actually, Barnabas means son of encouragement. His name, his real name was Joseph, but he's nicknamed Barnabas because he's an encourager and he is a Jew and he is the broker, in fact, between Paul and the rest of the apostles. When the apostles were struggling to welcome this renegade Saul who was persecuting and killing, when they couldn't figure out how this was possible, that he was now preaching. The, Barnabas is the one that took them and said, hey, this guy's for real. He, he's legit. You can, you can trust his message. I've seen it. And so Barnabas stood up for Paul. He is a trusted pillar of the church. And when, in fact, when the church was birthed at Antioch, the, the fact the Bible says in Acts chapter 11, uh, the, the term Christian was first used at Antioch these early Christians in Antioch. And so when there's a revival happening at Antioch and good things are happening, people are getting saved. There's hundreds and hundreds of people being saved in Antioch. God's breaking out and these these people need discipled. They need to be cared for. They need to be encouraged in their faith. Who do they send? Barnabas. Let's send Barnabas. Because the Bible says there in Acts 11, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So Barnabas had a pivotal role. So Paul takes him along, but he also takes along Titus, who he calls in his letter to Titus, and and you read in the New Testament the letter to Titus, he calls Titus my true son in our common faith. I love that. He was a Gentile. He was born into a Greek culture, Greek origin. God has worked in Titus's life. He has met Christ He has come to faith. He is also uncircumcised as a Gentile. Titus is, and if you will, as as Paul brings along Barnabas on one side, Titus on the other, he says, hey, guys, look, look, Titus, he's exhibit A for the gospel. Here's a man who's not circumcised, who wasn't born a Jew, but guess what? He knows God, and Jesus Christ has saved him utterly. He has received the Holy Spirit and the things that the truth of God is, is living in him. And so he is exhibit A for this great work of the gospel. Paul's calling was called, as you know, to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 9 when he is saved, when God meets him on the road to Damascus and he ends up at Ananias' house and he's blind and Ananias prays over him. God says he's a vessel of mine to the Gentiles, to the nations, 
to those who are not of Jewish origin. I will use this man for that purpose. And so Paul brings Titus deliberately to highlight the truth of the gospel. That Jews and Gentiles are accepted by God on the same terms. Paul makes it very clear. Through faith in Christ, it is grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. That's how it happens. Whether you're a Jew, born a chosen person of God, a, a man or a woman of God, born into that culture, that covenant community, or you're a Gentile, godless of the nations, didn't know God, but now God is revealing himself. Whatever you, whoever you are, this is how it happens. Through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the, the resounding call. And so Paul says, here's Barnabas, whom you know, a reputed pillar of this church. And here's this new guy, Titus, a son in the faith. And they're equal under the cross of Christ. Wow, I love that. Don't miss the significance of that. When Paul uses the phrase there, in, down in verse 2, he uses the phrase for fear that I was running, excuse me, was running or had run my race in vain. He's having this meeting because he doesn't want what he's done to be in vain. What did he mean? It wasn't that Paul had any personal doubts or misgivings about the gospel or was looking for reassurance of these Jerusalem apostles. He didn't need their reassurance. He already had the revelation of God to him. He had been preaching now for years. He was mostly concerned that the attack by the Judaizers would render his ministry fruitless. That if these guys win, if these guys, if their voices win out, you know what we're going to have? We're going to have Judaism part B. We're not going to have Christianity as we know it. We're going to have Judaism A, Old Testament, and Judaism B, Old New Testament. That's what we're going to have. If these, if these guys win this argument, this is what's going to happen to the church. Very significant. This is no small thing. If Paul hadn't stood up, you and I could be worshiping with little, what are those things called, those yarmulkes, and, right, in a prayer, you know, and, you know, be a whole lot of different things. We do a lot of Jewish Hebrew music in here this morning. But Paul stood the ground. Mm. Hmm. His motive in going to the apostles seems to have been to overthrow the Judaizers' influence, to their influence and to, to, press, to, to preserve the one true gospel that he and the other apostles had been declaring. It's that important that he stood toe-to-toe with these opponents. Paul acknowledges that there was pressure to conform to the law keepers. He says, but we resisted. We didn't even give in for a moment. Not for a moment did we give in. Titus was ultimately not circumcised. There was calls for him to be circumcised, but they resisted. And the attempt to make us slaves to something other than Christ was thwarted. And so here's the truth in, in your outline to have that place. Paul stood firm. The truth of the gospel was at stake. And he was determined at all costs to maintain the truth of the gospel. 
Piper said it well. Piper said, if Paul had given in to the demand of the false brothers, the gospel would have been destroyed. That is astonishing. There would be no gospel, no good news, if Paul gave in to the demands for circumcision. The good news to the world is that right standing before God was totally paid for by the death of Christ at Calvary and can be enjoyed only through faith in him. Any requirement that causes us to rely on our work and not Christ's work is the end of the gospel. And so the prevailing overarching theme of Galatians, as I mentioned earlier, is freedom. Freedom in Christ. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the law. Paul is totally committed to the message across all the churches that God used him to help start. Stand firm in the wonderful freedom of the gospel. Stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. Stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. So Paul says we didn't give in to them for a moment. And this is huge in the history of the church in the advancement of the gospel. The, the, the stand was again, and here's what the stand was about, and this is why it's so important. The stand that Paul made by the Spirit was a stand against self-effort to earn our salvation. To be accepted by God, you have to do this, and then this, and then this, and then this. That's where this whole thing was leading. That to be acceptable before God, you had to do a certain amount of stacking up of the rocks in order to be accepted. So glad that obviously God in his awesome power enabled that. I was reading this week a a classic, and I want to read just a a section out of this for you. It's, it's, It's a parable. This is one of my favorites in the grip of grace, a Lucado classic. And the parable is called the parable of the river. This is our story, your story, my story. He says, once there were five sons who lived in a mountain castle with their father. The eldest was an obedient son, but his four younger brothers were rebellious. Their father had warned them of the river, but they had not listened. He had begged them to stay clear of the bank, lest they be swept downstream. But the river's lure was too strong. Each day, the four rebellious brothers ventured closer and closer until one son dared to reach in and feel the waters. Hold my hand so I won't fall in, he said, and his brothers did. But when he touched the water, the current yanked him and the other three into the rapids and rolled them down the river. Over rocks they bounced. Through the channels they roared. On the swells they rode. Their cries for help were lost in the rage of the river. They, they thought that though they fought to gain their balance, they were powerless against the strength of the current. After hours of struggle, they surrendered to the pool of the river. The waters finally dumped them on the bank in a strange land, in a distant country, in a barren place. Savage people dwelt in the land. It was not safe like their home. Cold winds chilled the land. It was not warm like their home. Rugged mountains marked the land. It was not inviting like their home. Though they did not know where they were, of one fact they were sure they were not intended for this place. For a long time, the four young sons lay on the bank, stunned at their fall and not knowing where to turn. After some time, they gathered their courage and they re-entered the waters, hoping to walk upstream, but the current current was too strong. They attempted to walk along the river's edge, but the terrain was too steep. They considered climbing the mountains, but the peaks were too high. Besides, they didn't know the way. 
Finally, they built a fire and they sat down. We shouldn't have disobeyed our father, they admitted. We are a long way from home. With the passage of time, the sons learned to survive in this strange land. They found nuts for food, killed animals for skins. They determined not to forget their homeland nor abandon hopes of returning. Each day they set about the task of finding food and building shelter. Each evening they built a fire and they told stories of their father and their older brother. All four sons longed to see them again. And then one night, one brother failed to come to the fire. The others found him the next morning in the valley with the savages. He was building a hut of grass and mud. I've grown tired of our talks, he told them. What, a good, what good does it do to remember? Besides, this land isn't so bad. I will build a great house and settle there, settle here. But it, it isn't home, they objected. No, but it, it is if you don't think of the real one. But what of father? What of him? He isn't here. He isn't near. I might have spent forever waiting his arrival. I'm making new friends. I'm learning new ways. If he comes, he comes, but I'm not holding my breath. And so the other three left their hut building brother, and they walked away. They continued to meet around the fire, speaking of home and dreaming of their return. Some days later, a second brother failed to appear at the campfire. The next morning, his siblings found him on a hillside staring at the hut of his brother. How disgusting, he told them as they approached. Our brother is an utter failure. An insult to our family name. Can you imagine a more despicable deed, building a hut and forgetting our father? What he's doing is wrong, agreed the youngest, but what we did was wrong as well. We disobeyed. We touched the river. We ignored our father's warnings. Well, we may have made a mistake or two, but compared to the sleaze in the hut, we are saints. Father will dismiss our sin and punish him. Come, urged his two brothers. Return to the fire with us. No, I think I'll keep an eye on our brother. Someone needs to keep a record of his wrongs to show father. And so the two returned, leaving one brother building and the other judging. The remaining two sons stayed near the fire, encouraging each other, speaking of home. Then one morning, the youngest son awoke to find he was alone. He searched for his brother and found him near the river, stacking rocks. It's no use, the rock-stacking brother explained as he worked. Father won't come for me. I must go to him. I offended him. I insulted him. I failed him. There's only one option. I will build a path back up the river and walk into our father's presence. Rock upon rock, I will stack until I have enough rocks to travel upstream to the castle. When he sees how hard I have worked and how diligent I have been, he will have no choice but to open the door and let me into his house. The last brother did not know what to say. He returned to sit by the fire alone. And one morning he heard a familiar voice behind him. Father has sent me to bring you home. The youngest lifted his eyes to see the face of his oldest brother. You've come for us, he shouted. For a long time, the two embraced. And your brothers, the eldest finally asked. One has made a home here, another's watching him. And the third is building a path up the river. And so firstborn set out to find his siblings. And the story goes, I'm not going to read it all, but the story goes that the hut builder who was content with where he was, you know, the, he won't go with the brother, the eldest brother, the Jesus, the son of God. He won't go with him. He's too wrapped up in his little world now, in his hut making, mud making. And the other brother is so busy watching and judging and keeping an eye on the other brother. He, he, he get out of here. I, I don't have, I got to keep an eye. I, I can't go with you. I've got to make sure that this guy doesn't. And so the judger stays where he is as well. And then we come down, I'll finish with this, we come down to the, 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 the rock stacker, 
The eldest son walked to the river. There he found the last brother knee-deep in the water, stacking rocks. Father has sent me to take you home. The brother never looked up. I can't talk now. I must work. Father knows you have fallen, but he will forgive you. He may, the brother interrupted, struggling to keep his balance against the current. But I have to get to the castle first. I must build a pathway up the river. First, I will show him that I am worthy. Then I will ask for his mercy. He's already given his mercy. I will carry you up the river. You will never be able to build a pathway. The river's too long. The task is too great for your hands. Father sent me to carry you home. I am stronger. For the first time, the rock-stacking brother looked up. How dare you speak with such irreverence? My father will not simply forgive. I have sinned. I have sinned greatly. He told us to avoid the river, and we disobeyed. I am a great sinner. I need much work. No, my brother, you don't need much work. You need much grace. The distance between you and our father's house is too great. You haven't enough strength nor the stones to build the road. That is why our father sent me. He wants me to carry you home. Are you saying I can't do it? Are you saying I'm not strong enough? Look at my work. Look at my rocks. Already I can walk five steps, but you have five million to go. The younger brother looked at firstborn with anger. I know who you are. You are the voice of evil. You are trying to seduce me from my holy work. Get behind me, you serpent. He hurled at firstborn the rock that he was about to place in the river. Heretic, screamed the path builder. Leave this land. You can't stop me. I will build this walkway and stand before my father, and he will have to forgive me. I will win his favor. I will earn his mercy. Firstborn shook his head. Favor one is no favor. Mercy earned is no mercy. I implore you, let me carry you up the river. The response was another rock. So firstborn turned and left. Mm. This, is, this is actually a great parable about what Paul is confronting in Galatians. There's a lot of rock stackers that were trying to earn their way to God. And you know what? It hasn't changed a whole lot. There's still a lot of people, and perhaps I asked the question this morning, what about you? Are you relying on the grace and mercy of Christ, or are you committed to stacking up enough rocks that you'll make your way to heaven, earn your way to heaven? Hmm. Really important question. There's two outcomes of this meeting, and as we wrap up this morning, Galatians 2, the first outcome is the apostles added nothing to Paul's message. They did not find his gospel defective. They made no attempt to add to it. They didn't embellish it. They changed nothing, Paul says. It's as if Paul was saying, the gospel which I preach, the gospel which I submitted to the other apostles is the gospel which I am still preaching. The gospel which I am preaching today was not attained, was not, was not altered by them. It is the same as I preached before I saw them. It is the gospel which I preach to you and which you have received. I have added nothing. I have subtracted nothing. I have changed nothing. It is you Galatians who are deserting the gospel. It is not I. And so they added nothing. Very important to know. And then the, the final thing there is that the unity of the church was preserved. The apostles, he says, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They accepted me. They welcomed us as partners and fellow apostles in the gospel. God brought the early leaders together. 
It was the unity that Paul longed for. He had not run in vain. The apostolic witness, the foundation of the church, was not split. It was firm and solid. There was a strong, united base for one great mission with two spearheads. One to the Jews, which Peter would lead, and one to the Gentiles, which Paul would lead. But it's the same message. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. It was a great day for missions and a great day for us as Gentiles. As you read chapter 2, the early part, embrace it. This is, your, this is your story, my story, of how we came to know this great gospel in our lives because here were some men used by God and the Holy Spirit's working to protect and preserve against the opponents, against the enemies who want to make it something different. And Paul and Peter and the rest stood firm together and said, no, this is our message. What an awesome truth. Thank you for listening to this latest sermon. For more Prof. Church, check out our YouTube at Prof. Church Lancaster. Follow us on Facebook at Prof. Church Life, on Instagram at Prof. Church, or visit our website, profchurch.net. Thank you for listening, and be sure to make it a great day.